I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Oh, won't you Today's guest, Benoit Kim, is a psychotherapist turned podcaster. Which has more value, money or personal touch? Today, we're going to discover more with Benoit. Okay, so since you gave me an option in the beginning of which direction we wanted to go, would you rather go with questions from your friends or mine? Oh, wow. You said friends, plural? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Whatever, whatever's the juiciest. Juiciest are always who knows you better, right? True. Yeah, we'll start with friends. Speaking okay. of uh, memory lane. Yes, yes. Okay. So let's go with Tony. How do you pronounce his last name? Is it Mena? Mena, yep. Ooh, I was right. Okay. So Tony wanted to know, and I know you were recently on a Christian retreat. He wanted to know what motivates you to work for nonprofits or what motivates you to have a service-oriented career? I love choosing the broke, poor life. Just kidding. But I think that we all have to choose our path in life. And a lot of that is attributable to my parents' genetics. It's not necessarily cultivated. And I think I had the privilege to exposure to six-figure salary early on at age 20, 21, 22, straight out of college into management consulting realm. And I saw the rat race. I saw how miserable so many people were. And I remember this viscerally like yesterday where one of the partners, managing partners at Deloitte at the time, he was taking us out. He rented out the entire bar at Penn State for entrance right? To show us, to woo us with that golden handcuffs. And he got pretty drunk. And I asked him a question as I always do, even before podcasting that, Hey, is that worth it? Is it worth making that 500, $600,000 salary plus vesting options? And he started being cheerful. He straight up started crying a grown ass man in his fifties. And he said that I missed my firstborn. I didn't held him in my in the hospital, I wasn't with my wife. I missed my 10-year anniversary with my wife. I missed out on so many birthdays because the duty calls. And to get to that level comes with tremendous sacrifices. So that story stuck with me. And then once I started to work as a management consultant, I realized, wow, this is not the life I wanted. And I always wanted to do something altruistic, even though I don't believe in altruism. 
because there's always that feedback of feeling good. But I do believe in effective altruism. And I chose the path of nonprofit and giving back. And I always check myself, I'm not a savior, I'm not better than other people. Some people find money intrinsically incentivizing, and they like money intrinsically. For me, intrinsically, I like making impacts and creating this legacy. And at the end of the day, just a job. And it's just a personal calling. When did you realize that? Well, I think so. The first few years in the nonprofit sector, I think I definitely had this extra chip on my shoulder that, oh, look at me. I'm creating this impact. I'm parting the positive footprint in this world, unlike all my private sector friends. And we always find reasons to put other people down when you have that hole internally. And then through my mid to late 20s, I realized, wait a minute, I happen to choose this path because I find this fulfilling. So it's not holy or sacred or better than anyone else. It's just what drive me well. And I, I can't survive that rat race background. I just can't. I can't even just stuck it through, you know, just treading forwards. A lot of people do it. I can't do it with my personality trait. So I think it was about mid-20s. Interesting. Now, you were just at this Christian retreat. And in our interview together, you asked the audience, how many of you want to get married? And you shared with me that 60% of people end up in divorce. But how many people wanted to get married? You said that a good chunk of the audience raised their hands. What did you take from this Christian retreat that you just did? What stayed with you from that event? That's a great question. I tie this back to my previous, previous, previous career as a teacher through Teach for America, where that's how I ended up in Philadelphia. And that was my entry point into the nonprofit sector. And I, I taught inner city students, like the black and brown kids who had nothing, drive-by shooting on a weekly basis. It was some crazy stuff. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go in and teach them the subject he, the subject I was teaching because I was a subject matter expert as a teacher. But the reality is I learned more from my kids, their grit, their resilience, their emotional maturity, and tie that into your question where I thought I was going in to volunteer my time to babysit 65 high schoolers, which is tremendous hard work. But the reality was I saw the kids being really emotional, seeing, witnessing a lot of God moments. We have this worship night where it, it's like a sober rave. It's like a raving. Kids just go crazy. They jump around. They sing in this dark and kids are like, all the kids were crying. They were hugging each other because of depressions, the lonely path, just being Korean Americans and that heightens pressure from our parents. And just seeing them realize, wow, I might be farther in life than they are due to my age and experiences. But in terms of spiritual maturity or this thing that we call faith, some of these kids might have stronger faith than I do because they're in high school. You know, the opportunity cost of them hanging out with their cool friends outside of this retreat, because it's a two days retreat. Yet all of them, sure, some of them are parental pressure. It's a tradition, sure. But a lot of juniors and seniors, they chose to come to this retreat by giving up their technologies, phones and cell phone for two, two days and just spend time with God and each other. And I realized, wow, there's definitely things I could do better in my spiritual life. So yeah, I definitely learned in terms of how mature and how vulnerable and how honest they are with their feelings. Because as adults, we're not always honest and straightforward with how we feel inside. How do they get the kids to do that? in today's social media addict world. I just talked about this too on my way back. It's funny. So there is like this formula, air quotes. I'm part of the church called Yongnak Church. It's one of the Korean uh, mega churches in LA. And a lot of these kids are, they're like legacies. We call them Yongnak babies. Their parents used to be students and then the parents became teachers. And it's like almost like three, four generations. 
So it's extremely, extremely internally interconnected. So I think they have this unwavering trust with their peers and other classmates who are there. And I asked a kid who was in my small group, I asked him, his name is Ryan. I said, how are you guys able to cry just so openly in, you know, 50, 60 people? A, having dark lights, like having the lights off helps a lot. So people feel like they can be more honest. And B, he said, it's almost more embarrassing to hold your emotions back when your friends are being so radically honest. And to nerd out a little bit, it's a group psychology, right? It's a group flow. Why is music festivals? Why are these concerts so riveting? And why do people emote and have these group almost like psychedelic like experience without the substances? Because you are moved by this collective entity and this collective movement. And the psychology behind group flow is fascinating, where a lot of people who go on riots and these like very violent behaviors and these circumstances, a lot of those individuals by themselves, they will never do such a thing. They will never even harm a fly. But you put them in this group where they're emoting, whether through anger, resentments, or whatever emotions, positive or negative, they just they get activated. And it's almost like the hormones are being synced. So I feel like all that helps with people feeling more comfortable. But at the end of the day, it comes to emotional safety. They feel safe and they feel like it's a perfectly fine container for them to embrace our faith and for them to emote the way they feel called to. That's really beautiful. I have a couple questions that came to mind when you were saying that. One, have you come across any doubters and be able to understand them? And then two, have you ever studied true crime cases? I was a forensic clinician for a year, three years ago, and I did work with individuals who were committed like felonies, like atrocious, like crimes, murder. So I know true crime a little bit all too well because I've said in sessions with individuals who've committed multiple murders and homicide, but they pled guilty to NGI, which is not guilty by the reasons of insanity. What that means is at the times of their crime, they're under psychosis or psychotic episodes. And these are not fakeable. Like the process to get to that NGI pleading is one of the most rigorous process. So as a reference point, out of all felonies and all homicide charges in all of America, only 1% is eligible for NGI plea. And out of that 1% eligible individuals, only 1% actually get NGI. Because you have to prove by psychiatrists, medical doctors, and psychologists, multiple panels to show that you are actually under psychosis, which means you are not yourself. And it's true. These individuals who have committed three or four murders, who killed their mom, like Ted Bundy type, we have those individuals. They're in their 50s and 60s now because they've been under this program for like years. And a lot of them don't really remember the time of the crime because they blacked out or they're just under psychotic episodes. So yes, I, I definitely have some experience with true crime, which is why I was saying your research skills are like forensic worthy. Uh, but to answer your first question, yeah, there are a lot of skeptics, but many of them, they go there because it's their traditions. And many of them go there because of their relationships of friends. And a lot of these Korean American kids, their parents are tiger parents, there's so much pressure, because a lot of their socioeconomic backgrounds are more privileged. So they feel like they can't really complain, they have air quote, everything planned out for them, just like a lot of Jewish families, right, similar backgrounds where you're, you're really well off. So what are you complaining for? Just work hard, put your head down, study, go to the best college, yada, yada, yada. So they don't really have a space in their household to share their emotions and express their internal realities to their parents because they get shut down the moment they do that. So I think that's why they come to these retreats, just have two days of unplugging 
from everything and just be themselves. But not everyone, their beliefs. But I think to me, God means love. And I think God works through relationships. I've heard you mention that you yourself had a tiger mom. What did that do to you in terms of life expectations? That is a deep question. So a lot. So quick trigger warning, it catalyzed some of my first uh, few suicidality, like suicide thinking, I wanted to cut myself, I wanted to jump off the building. My mom also used to like fat shame me when I was in middle school, because I was so stressed. I moved from France and then Korea and then Korea to China at the time. And I, I didn't speak the language. So imagine that frustrations, right? So I remember I used to stress eat a lot. So my mom would be like, oh, you're a pig. She'll use very abusive, like car languages. And but in terms of expectations, I thought that life were linear. If you do X, then Y happens. If you work hard, then life is guaranteed to do well for you. If you do this, then that. But as you know, Rina, life is not linear. Life is not linear by any means. You can do everything within your power. Life still may not pan out the way you want it to be. Because if you think about this, we didn't even choose our birthright. We didn't choose to be born. So if we didn't choose our birthright, it's laughable to think that we can exert influence on this thing we call, we, we call life. It's a greater force than we are, right? So I think uh, I had a very unhealthy and distorted expectations of how life works. If I just work hard enough, I'll get into the college I wanted to be. And then for my college or my senior in high school, I got rejected by every single college my mom asked me to apply for. My mom didn't believe in safety school. She only made me apply to top 20 in the entire country. And she literally said, Benoit, you are my son. You have my genetics because she went to the, like, she has insane CV and resume. She's like, you have my genetics. You have God as your cheerleader. With those two things, you can achieve whatever you wanted to do. And then six months later, I got rejected by all schools, waitlisted by two. So I, I was depressed. I didn't know what depression was because I was like 17, 18 at the time. And I got really, really down. I saw, wow, God must not love me. I must be a failure. My mom can do this. Why can't I? And I was an older sibling. So I also had the additional pressure of being the role model, being the best example for my younger sister. But it definitely screwed me up well for um, until the early of my 20s. Whoa. Have you been able to communicate that to her? How did you start that conversation? Your show is called Better Call Daddy. Uh, if I had a show, it'd be called Better Call Mommy because I'm a mama's boy. For sure. Yeah, we've reconciled and we had that uh, conversations in my early 20s, my mid 20s, and even now. I'm moving through some family situations, as I shared briefly on, on our episode earlier, but we didn't, we never saw a therapist together, but we've had a lot of heart to heart conversations. And she is extremely open and she's very receptive. And as you know, with the power of age and time, her fangs and her claws of Tiger Mom sort of falls off a little bit, just with the power of time. And she softened out a lot and she's became a lot more receptive. She started to believe in mental health because she didn't believe that for the longest time but a lot of older generations people especially as a woman in her generation she's 60 now navigating that space in korea like you think women get treated bad in america go to asia or some of these countries like women have no rights you know like it's, it's not possible so she had to build up all these calluses to protect herself. It's a protective mechanism. So I understand where she was coming from. So I always empathize with her upbringing because I work hard and I'm pretty high achieving, but I will never amount to what she's achieved. And I'm not comparing. I hate comparison syndrome and comparison Olympics. It's just 
the circumstances I'm seeing this for objectively. So I, I always understood where she was coming from. And she always told me that we sort of, we talked about this earlier, where every parent is a parent for the first time. And if you think about what adults and parents are, they're just older children who are parenting their own children for the first time in their lives. So I think that understanding helps a lot, but she's very receptive. She's not afraid to say sorry. And she owns up to some of her mistakes and she has a lot of regrets. At the same time, I wouldn't be where I am now sitting across the screen from you if it weren't for her to burden the shoulder of being a single parent for the longest time. I love that you said your show would be better call mommy. That's really sweet. And it's truly amazing that you had that compassion for her and that understanding, even though those are some hard words to hear. I actually definitely had some body image struggles because I was very close with my dad's mom. She was like a second mom to me. My I grew up with all four of my grandparents and my dad had very thin sisters who my grandmother loved to shop for. And she constantly made comments like, oh, well, when you're skinny, you can fit into so many more things. And she loved to feed me. But then when I got curvier. She also loved to comment on that. And I think I started dieting at 12 and I started having eating disorders in college. I wanted, I mean, even before that high school, and it took a long time to get over that. And then even as a mom, oh my God, having kids really puts weight on your body and, and loving yourself through that and realizing that you're bringing life into this world and you need to be healthy in order to do that. How did you resolve those body image issues? So before that, I just want to add where it's funny you mentioned the grandparents, their love. I think Jewish culture and Asian culture are very similar where we express love through food. It's like the best vehicle for love. My grandma will always say that, oh, Benoit, you look like you lost a few pounds, eat up. And then next time she's like, oh, you look like you gained a few pounds. Let's cut back a little bit. I was like, grandma, what do you want? I can't do both. Do you want me to, do you want to feed me or do you want to starve me? Please don't do both. It's, it sends too many confusing signals. But I still have some, because there's a difference between eating disorder, which is ED clinically, and there's also disordered eating. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of men who work out very religiously and who are rigorous workout former athletes i'm also a veteran i think we all have some sort of a body dysmorphia that we move through currently mm. guys do i even now i have some disorder eating tendencies where I, it's not that i'm conscious about how i look because i'm happily engaged i'm very fit i'll always be fit because you know workout is just part of my life at the same time i don't truly know i actually work through that entirely but to go back to the time i just referenced in terms of when i was being suicidal when i was being fashioned by my mom in my early like adolescent days i think i just had to recognize that i'm really stressed i'm in a new country new language new friends. I'm being uprooted every single couple of years due to my parents' my mom's business at the time. I think I just chose to be a little bit more gracious with myself. And I think I overcompensated my body image concerns by working harder, by striving for achievements. So it's almost like I detached my self-worth from my body image because I knew I wasn't able to lose weight right away to achievements and being a scholar. But then my sophomore and my sophomore in high school, so a few years after the fashion incident because that happened in middle school i lost 55 pounds in one summer i yeah i, I just have that willpower it, it's given where i i got i started to get bullied in high school because i was the first international student that the high school in 
Orange County ever, ever witnessed. So I was bullied very severely freshman year. And then I found football. I was like, wait, there is a sport. You can legally hit people in the field. So that was a very healthy way for me to cope through my anger. And also I just got sick of being bullied. So I said, you know what? I'm going to lose 55 pounds. And I lost 55 pounds in one summer. I ate special case cereals. I cut a lot of weight. I started to run every single night. It was dreadful. But ever since then, I started to get a little bit better and more healthier with my body. I can relate to some of that insanity because you can control it. And I have perfectionism in my blood. And so, yeah, it was like once I figured out how to start losing weight, I just made myself do it. And it is painful. I mean, I blacked out and took diet pills and diuretics and you name it, I've tried it, but that's not healthy. Even now, if I have like a big gorging incidents over the weekend or something, I will go on like a 24 to 36 hour fast, even though I do like the lucidity you feel from fasting, because it's like an ancient practice, right? And it has a lot of health benefits, but I'm very self-aware and I'm a clinician, so I can't lie to myself. So I know deep down, the reason for me to do that is still because of body image or the so-called physique or some sort of uh, disorder eating tendencies. I recognize it and I'm, I'm working through it too. At the same time, I know my body really well and I'm really healthy. I get sick once every five, six years. So I'm an athlete. I, I do a lot of mind-body connections, exercises, attunements. So what I do and what works for me is definitely not for everyone. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, do you know your body? Well, I totally relate to that. Like I ate too much peanut butter trail mix over the weekend. And then the next morning I'm like getting on the treadmill every single time I have something sweet or a piece of cake or something that I shouldn't that's off the diet or off eating healthy. I hop on the treadmill. So yes, it's still underlying with me too. I would like to talk a little bit more about Korea because I know that you in your military service ended up there. What was that? Almost. What was your military? experience like in the time that you spent? So I was in Army Reserve and I talked a lot about on the show and when I was interviewed where my military experience catalyzed my first major depression, which was the entry point to this realm of mental health, because as I alluded to earlier, I didn't believe in mental health because my mom didn't believe in mental health. And a lot of children, we uphold our parents' and authorities and teachers' opinions as truth. And we internalize those truths even though they're just limited opinions. So I have a lot of gratitude towards that experiences in retrospect, but going through it, it was a wild whirlwind of journeys. So I joined the reserve to become an American citizen. They used to have this specialized linguistic program. If you speak one of the languages that's in high demand for strategic reasons, you test into it and then you can skip green card. You can literally go from foreign national into become an American citizen in about four months. It's unparalleled. It's a faceted accelerated program. It's been discontinued because of Mr. Trump a while ago. I was the second to last cohorts they've ever admitted. So I got really lucky with that. But when I joined, I did a lot of front loading, a lot of calculus. And I said, let's think about the international arena because my majors in college was international relationships and economics because I wanted to become a diplomat since I speak three and a half languages. I'm multicultural. I thought it would be the right path. Of course, God had different plans for me entirely. But because of that, I've always had great pulse on international politics. And I thought we're in a pretty safe post-Bush era. There is no likelihood of warfare. This is, of course, way before Trump and all that. So I thought, oh, this is a, I put my six years in, I get my citizenship and I get out and you make decent money, decent benefits. 
benefits. And then little behold, in 2017, Mr. Trump and Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, started to have some measuring contests of, I got the red button. No, I got the red button. And remember, the tension was very high. We were sort of fearful, is this going to be World War III? And mine was one of the 12 units in all of the U.S. to get deployed to support the American troops stationed in the North and South Korean border. And the chance of escalation was pretty high. And I had to confirm my mortality for the first time that, wow, I have this three-year, five-year, seven-year plan. I'm pretty smart. I'm capable. I got work ethic. I got a great vision. But God is like, nope, not happening. You're going to get deployed internationally and you may die. So I confronted and flirted with the idea of mortality that I'm just a, one of the infinite floating stardust. What do I know? Uh, a lot of times what we think how life happens is not how it happens. It unfolds the way it does. So the deployment was canceled the day of because it was way too expensive. And we fortunately came to this de-escalation point, but I was dispatched to Kentucky for three months of rigorous training. We call it because Kentucky has similar weather as South Korea, which is very humid. So so we were under this like climate controlled uh, training to get ready for mobilization. That's what we call it. And yeah, for those three months, I was depressed. I was like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I'm going to die. And I'm going to go back to Korea, not as a tourist and not visiting my family, but to be stationed at the North and South Korean border, staring at the North Korean soldiers across the border. That is crazy. But that's all that was. But fortunately, uh, everything calmed down and my deployment was canceled literally the day of when we're about to fly across the country, get shipped. And then I went to Coachella the week after to celebrate the difference between from potential death to life. Oh my God. Did that feel like a God moment? Yes. And it's just so hard to describe that stark contrast going from majorly depressed to about to go across internationally for warfare to now in this beautiful California weather, not sober the entire time and just celebrating life and just hanging out with my friends who invited me. And yeah, it just, I couldn't believe how life worked. And that's when I realized, yeah, life moves the way it does. And we have no influence or control over this thing that we call life. How are you surrendering now? So that's the biggest theme I think God put me on for the last three years with my multiple career pivots coming from Philadelphia, where I loved to LA to support my fiance's medicine journey because she's a physician. And I had, there's so many greater forces in life that are just beyond our control and amount of prepping, it does nothing. It happens the way it does. And in stoic philosophy, because I love stoic philosophy, a lot of people think stoics are just emotionless people who fight on. That's actually not true. Stoics believe that you have to be honest with your feelings and you have to emote and release those feelings, but not for too long. Do it. And then you need to confront life and move head on. That's Stoic philosophy at its core. And there is a philosophy in Stoics where they talk about do not borrow unhappiness from the future because you're going to suffer because suffering and pain is part of life. So you're going to suffer by the circumstances of life anyhow. So why suffer twice? So that's like the root of my answer where I learned that over and over and over again. And I think you can relate where I think I call it God. Some people call it universe. God will instill and try to teach you the same lesson multiple times until you get that lesson. If you don't get that lesson, you're going to go through the same situations that looks differently and manifest differently. And I've gone through some of those four or five lessons, the same pain teacher just over and over again. I realized, God, you got me. I'm going to surrender. This surrender is not giving up. 
you're giving in to a higher power. And that alleviates the pressure because if there's no God, we have to burden the pressure of uncertainties and the unknown. Humans are terrified of unknown. That's why pattern recognition works. It's, oh, let me check out the data points in my database. Let me pattern recognize. Let me look at some of the things in the past to predict the future. But the future literally means it hasn't happened. It's unprecedented. That's why pattern recognition is inherently flawed. But I think that's how I was able to surrender fully because I learned that hard lesson. I had to swallow that pill. I had to internalize it. And I think without this ability to surrender utterly, I'm not saying I'm perfect. So three years ago, it might have taken me three, four months to finally go to God and pray, say, God, take me now. Now it would take me about a day. Within a day, I would say, God, help me. Because I would try to you know, be resourceful and move through whatever situations and then go to God. But without that surrender, I don't think I would have been able to survive my three career pivots in seven years because all the careers I pivoted into were brand new fields, no experiences, no connections. It's complete unknown. But now I love pivoting. I love the unknown because it keeps me exciting. Speaking of struggles, was it a struggle not to have sex for three years? <laughs> yes, it's the, <laughs> that's funny. It's the most profound, challenging, emotional training center I've ever gone through. Because I learned about self-control. I learned about creating systems. But Atomic Habits by James Clear, great book. The ethos of that book is about everyone has finite amount of willpower and discipline because that's also genetic variability. Not everyone is given the same amount of willpower. Like David Goggins or Jocko, those people are given and birth with a heightened threshold of willpower. That is a fact. Plus discipline, plus they work hard, but they do have genetics. In the clinical literature, we say about 20 to 30% is about genetics and 60 to 70 is about nurture, which is environmental feedback where you grow up in. It's always both nature and nurture. So I have very high discipline. As I talked about, I lost 55 pounds. I chose to give up sex with my partner to address the internal moral and emotional incongruence. And most people wouldn't able to do that. And I, I able to initiate it. And I had to realize we have, there are some tough days. Sometimes temptation is really strong. Plus I lived with my fiance, who's not my fiance now. So it's not even like we're doing long distance. We gave up sex it's because we had to. It's like, no, we chose to living and sleeping in the same bed. But I realized the importance of creating systems to ensure that what we want to achieve, the intention can be executed well. But yeah, being hard is an understatement. I think we need a more challenging, deeper work than hard. But I learned a lot about myself and my partner. And now we have this hyperactive, hyper proactive communication channels and methods that we learned from those three years of profound, profound experience. What gave you that idea? Can I talk about psychedelics? In this? Yeah, yeah. So I'm an aspirational psychedelic assisted psychotherapist. I go, I work at USC got my master's at USC as well. My clinical orientations and my clinical focus is psychedelic therapy. I'm not here to explain the science because evidence is very robust. I tell people I'm not in a business of convincing. The evidence is out there. If you want to look it up, please look up and do more research after the fact. So this is a little bit of a long story. It goes back to another thing where I had a sexual trauma in college, during my sophomore in college. And then that sort of propelled me to this objectifying woman because it was a it was a sexual assault by a woman. Because statistics is about one in seven men experience sexual trauma. Of course, women, that's like the more obvious, more explicit. But men, a lot of men experience that too. And I felt victim to this. So I was vindictive. I wanted to objectify a woman. I said, I got screwed over. So I'm going to revenge back. I was never violent and everything was consensual, of course. But I, I'm what people call a retired F-boy. <laughs> that's what <laughs> people 
because I, I would never lie for sex, but you know, it was very common and therapy didn't help self-help books. Didn't help my introspection level. Didn't help. Nothing helped that allowed me to move through sexual trauma until I came across psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms therapy in 2017, ironically around the same time as deployment, this healed both of my traumas in like eight hours. So I witnessed the efficacy of psychedelic therapy. I was like, holy crap, there is more to this just being a party drug, you trip on a music festival, there's the implications, the potential for healing is a lot greater. So I subscribed to psychedelic therapy. Reason why I share that to answer your question is every single year, I trip at least once a year, because one of the documented evidence for psychedelic is we call it neural reset. So with, with stress, and just things you go through in life, lack of sleep, your brains accumulate toxins in your brain. That's why sleep is a non-negotiable because by you going to sleep, your neurons in your brain are literally neurologically working hard to cleanse through those toxins and release those toxins in your sleep through neuroplasticity mechanisms. So by shortcutting your sleep, you're also shortcutting your process to clean out the neurotoxins in your brain. And psychedelics is an accelerated way to do a neural reset. It was completely cleansed and reset the toxins in your brain. So I do it microdose once a year, just for the sake of that neural reset. And I want to finish my time and chapter in Philadelphia before I moved to LA by doing a psychedelic trip. I did a full hero's dose, which is like five grams. It's a lot, but wow. I have a lot of recreational and clinical experiences. I also do research. So I'm very well equipped because there are warning signs and red tapes. And during that trip, I had a God moment. I think at that time, I tripped at least 50 times and hundreds of hours doing psychedelics, but I've never had a religious experience that people described it as. Mine was mm -hmm. always lessons and sure, it was very insightful and colorways, but I never had this at God moment until then. Let me try to describe this visually. When you close your eyes, psychedelic opens a portal to a different reality. There's, I call it the reality behind the eyelids. And I remember seeing this river of dots like a stardust if you ever been to like yosemite or national park at like 2 a.m you can see the milky way mm -hmm. it's almost you can touch it imagine that but like inches away from your face and i remember this just beautiful majestic indescribable beauty of this floating river of this floating stardust and it was like billions of stardust it was like a river and i just instinctively knew reflexively i was like oh that's God, not this God, this beard, Jesus figure that we think about, but the embodiment of what God is, because if, and I think it represents humanity, because in theory, if 8 billions of us can collectively wield our power together, we can rebuild pyramids in probably two minutes. We can empty out the Pacific oceans in probably three minutes in theory, but of course it's not possible. Just me mechanically, you can't control 8 billion people, you know, every single step of the way. But I just knew that that was God. And then I had this thought, Benoit, I know it's literally spoken from a first person view to me. It's like, Benoit, I always knew that every time you had sex, even with your girlfriend at the time, because we've been dating for a year and a half before we gave up sex, you always felt a little bit guilty because of your Christian faith after the words, because it was premarital sex. Why don't you take this opportunity to start a brand new chapter by leaving Philadelphia, by giving up sex, by recommitting to abstinence? It was literally a thought while I was hallucinating and having this trip experience in my empty apartment in Philadelphia. And it was unshakable. It's one of those two things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. So I thought, holy crap. Am I about to give up sex? And I gave up alcohol shortly after as well. I've been sober from alcohol for three years now as well. And I had a conversation the next day with Becky, my fiance, saying that, hey, this is what happened. I had a God moment. 
how do you feel about giving sex? And she said, I felt the exact same way my whole life. And she tried to give up sex with her ex-boyfriend of seven years. They lasted for a month and they failed. And I told her, I'm different. I have heightened willpower. We'll systemize this. We'll create systems to make this work. And lo and behold, we, her and I, we agreed. And she shares the exact same faith as I do. She's very spiritual. And that's what catalyzed and prompted both of us to give up sex. But it comes down to the God moments and the religious experience from doing psychedelics. That is amazing. What has that done for your relationship? It leveled up all domains of relationships. It taught us to communicate better, more proactively. It taught us to be more patient with each other because you get frustrated through arguments and you want to short circuit that frustration without having sex, using sexuality or lust as a crutch. We don't have crutch. Because it's just us and emotions. So it taught us to not run away from our problems and confront it head on. Mm. It's easier for me because that's who I am. But she deals with avoidant tendency, like attachment theory. So she's a lot more avoidance. So confronting emotions is not easy for her as it's easier for me. So she learned a lot from me. And I also learned to be more gracious with each other's mistakes. Because there's dips, there's highs and lows. Some days the temptation is really, really loud. And we just learn to be more attuned with what we need in the moment versus what the society said you should. Because what we did is not popular by the societal metrics. I mean, you could relate because you did it for a year and a half. So I think it really taught us to communicate better, but more importantly, to really trust our guts and follow what feels right for us internally versus the external noises and external standards of what you should do. Okay. But talking about what feels right, I mean, it definitely heightens your level of sensitivity to any touch. I mean, she could probably brush by you and that would turn you on because <laughs> if you're not touching at all, then you're noticing every little touch, right? Here's a high level of the parameters and the boundaries we did. We tell people that we lived a hermit and like middle school life. So the farthest skinship we will do is cuddle when we go to bed. That is it. But we... <laughs> That's dangerous. Yeah, but we leave room for Jesus in the middle. So there's always a gap. It's not that intimate, which is what middle schoolers and high schoolers do. So we did that. We will hold hands. We will kiss. But there's no French kissing. You're just dabbing. Literally like middle schoolers to create temptations. We're, we become a lot more shy and innocent with each other. Even thinking back, it's kind of crazy where I haven't felt that level of innocence and purity since I was in high school. So yeah, it wasn't easy at all. But I think by creating systems, it allowed us to rely less on our willpower. And it was easier to be disciplined because we had these like mutually agreed upon rules and systems and housekeeping rules that allowed us to do it. But but then when we do get a little bit more skinship, aka like cuddling a little bit longer or kissing for two seconds instead of half a second dab, we get this like jolts of energy. Like we get like that, you know, that high school chills. You're like, oh, that was scandalous. Of course, that's a joke. But I think it in a way sparked us and kept us relationship more exciting. And we have more things to look forward to because we knew that we're doing this, A, because we believe we're going to get married. If we knew it wasn't a lifelong partnership, why would we subjugate us under this torture? Because it was torturous for sure. But yeah, it kept our relationship more innocent and interesting in a weird way that we didn't really foresee beforehand. I mean, I think that's something that the audience should take note of because if you want someone that you're dating to experience what it would have been like to spend time with you as a teenager, try that on. <laughs> and the running joke is since now we recommit a sexual relationship with the engagements, we'll get legally married in like a month or two because she has great physician insurance. So I need, to, I need the insurance benefits ASAP. That's half joke, half truth. It's almost like because we had 
known about every other skeleton because there's no skeleton in the closet is you really have to get deep and you really have to know yourself and your partner. So now we almost joke like, wow, we're virgins again. We joked about us being virgins again, like being the chosen virgin. In a sense, it is kind of true because it's not even like forbidden fruit, like Adam and Eve. Like we knew the forbidden fruit because we've partaken in it for a year and a half before we recommitted from abstinence from sex. So we're like, we chose to be virgins again. And it does keep like the sex life or the current romantic and sexual chapter a lot more, not enticing, but just a lot more worthy because we know we both chose the path of highest resistance. And now we're here on the other side, everything's just a lot more fruitful, like emotionally, relationally, romantically, sexually. So the benefits are great. But I'll, I also don't want to say that, oh, all these were planned out. This was all calculated. That wasn't the case. The reason was very pure. We just let's address our moral and emotional incongruence. That was it. But all these unintended benefits start to happen. Because when you make a decision in life, Rina, you embrace that decisions. You don't look back. You just move forward. A lot of new pathways tend to open up. Okay. I love that you just said my name. <laughs> what would you tell someone who has experienced abuse and has not shared that with their partner? I'm going to have to bill you for a therapy session afterwards for all the therapy feedback. That's a really hard one. It, it depends. It depends who the person is. It depends on their circumstances. And also depends on the level of psychological and emotional safety that's been established within their relational container. So instead of answering, I would ask, why not? What is stopping you from sharing your abused history or some of the more vulnerable and intricate sensitive details with your significant other that you say you love? Why not? What's stopping you? What happens? Because I think we have to meet where they're at. Whether it's therapists and clients or humans to humans, like we talked about where I don't believe in advice because too much context is required. Like, who am I speaking with? What is their upbringing? What is their aspirations? What do they want? What is their goals? And likewise, to your question, it depends. What are they hoping to achieve out of their relationship? Are you seeking a lifelong partnership? Is it just a season? Is it just a rebound relationship? It's just a for fun. And because the ultimate goal of every relationship, friendship or romantic or otherwise, it's all about finding the world safe again. Because what trauma and abuse does to you psychophysiologically is you feel that the world is no longer safe. Because the world is unsafe, I have to do everything within my power to protect myself. It's survival. There's nothing wrong with that. So if someone is not sharing anything that's vulnerable and very close to their heart, with their loved ones, I don't pathologize that. I just view it as, wow, they're trying to survive in this world where they feel unsafe. So I would rather, instead of what's making you feel unsafe, currently with a person that you love. If you've been dating that person for three, four years, and you still feel unsafe emotionally, there's something there. I don't use the word good or bad, but I think it's worth examining the archives of your behaviors, the archives of your patterns, and what characters or what behaviors that is contributing to you feeling unsafe to a point that you feel like you can't open up wholeheartedly to this person who tells you that they will love you no matter what. That's a great response. I have a follow-up too, because you mentioned after that happened to you that you became an F-boy. Do you think when men are abused that it changes something in their sexual wantings or desires or anything along those lines? I can't speak for all men. So I'm going to speak from my experiences where there is actual neurological 
and genetical changes. So the field is called epigenetics. So once again, not to nerd out too much, but I love neurobiology. So please stop me when this becomes a TED talk or, or a lecture. So genetics is the given subsets of DNA genomes, which is the DNA expressions. That's the genetics, like Y chromosome, X chromosome, et cetera. Epigenetics is a study of change of DNA expressions based on your environmental feedback. So what that means is this given subset of genetic foundations of the chromosomes and genomes, they're unchanged because they're fixed. But the DNA expressions of how you express those given subsets, they do change based on nurture. That's why the people ask, is it nature or nurture? It's always both. So epigenetically, it does create psychological changes in men. And it's not just men, women, men, whoever you are, anything that's traumatic. Because trauma is this word that people are allergic to nowadays, right? But trauma literally means a scar because it's a physical, it's a medical word. It's a physical trauma it means you have a scar tissue. That's what trauma is literally. But then that trauma creates a scar tissue, which creates creates a physiological change, right? I'm a former athlete. I'm a veteran. I used to be pretty rowdy as a kid. I used to do a lot of dumb stuff, jumping off the rooftops, whatever. So I have like four or five scars throughout my body and they're permanent. So physiologically, the physical trauma changes your physiology. Similarly, psychological, emotional trauma changes your psychology. Also, not permanently, a lot of it can be reversed, but it takes a lot of time. So I don't really know how that changes people's or men's sexual preferences or their sexual expression. That's probably what you're asking about. I don't quite know. At the same time, what I do know is hurt people hurt people. Like with my case, I was hurt. So I wanted to hurt other people. Because when you feel like your life is missing control, that your life is sparring out of control. You have no control or pulse over how your life goes. How do you get that power back? You exert influence other other people, right? By hurting them and other a lot of people. And the reason why a lot of perpetrators, so for example, this is a very dark and sensitive topic. A lot of kids with sexual trauma, like let's say they were raped and abused by their father, by their mother sexually, right? A lot of times they become perpetrators themselves when they grow up because it's about priming and role modeling. Imagine the only ways you know how to cope through a relational conflict is through alcohol because you grew up under alcoholic parents. Guess what you're going to do when you go through your own relational conflict? Alcohol. It's not because they're incompetent. It's because that's the only reference and data points they have in their databases. And likewise, if you've been abused sexually by your parents or by elders, your cousins, there's a lot of sexual trauma and assault happens within families, like people that you know of that's statistically accurate, is you're going to replicate that behavior unconsciously without you know, because it feels familiar. And familiarity comes with comfort. And nobody likes discomfort. So I think the answer is yes, but I don't, that's a long winded answer to say, I, I don't know, but hurt people do hurt people traumatically. I appreciate that answer. And I think it really segues into a question from Patrick Martin, who you've done an episode with. He was interested in your experience moving into the therapy field and wanted to know about how your military experience helped you transition into that? And then how do you take these experiences and all of these things that you've talked about with me today? And how do you share that with your clients? Shout out to you, Patrick. Great guy. And shout out to you for the thorough forensic like research. I think it also depends who I'm speaking with. So I think the short answer is it gives me a sense of relatability because I could tell them that, hey, especially with men clients, because a lot of men come into our session saying that, oh, this is pseudoscience. We're just going to talk about my feelings. What are you going to do? Just talking about feelings. You're not going to change me. 
And I said, yes, I'm not here to change you. I'm here to hopefully help you going from a place of stuckness. That's what trauma is. You get stuck to go from stuckness to unstuckness. But therapy is the same thing as reading a book, journaling, talking to people. It's a space of self-exploration. We all navigate our lives based on the idiosyncrasies, our belief systems, our thoughts and feelings. And a lot of times, many of those are distorted. Like the way we started this interview with, we internalize our parents as truth, right? So if you're going to navigate your life based on your internal thoughts and feelings and belief system, let's make sure that the operating system you're basing your life out of is accurate. Let's just start there. And that's how I approach my therapy, where I'm just a GPS system with certain expertise and certain modalities. I'm just here to show you, turn left, turn right. But I often ask them, can you get to where you want to be by taking a detours or not following the GPS? Yes, of course. It might take you a little bit longer. It might take a few additional detours, but you can get to the same destinations by taking a different path. But at the end of the day, Rena, I tell all my clients that I'm the expert of clinical psychology and therapy, but you're the expert of your own life always. So to answer your question, I think it depends on who I'm speaking with, but if there are men I relate because I'm a veteran. I'm a former varsity athlete. Like the, I've, I'm tall. I have a great physique. If they want bravado and machoism, I got it. But if they want more emotionality and being attuned with their emotions and redefine what being masculinity means, I don't like the term toxic masculinity because what does that mean, right? It's more about let's redefine what does it mean to be a man in 2023? Because like I said, Stoics are real men. These are gladiators. These are the greatest philosophers of our not our generations, but historically. And those men will cry in public. They would talk about their internal stresses with their trustees, and then they would confront it, internalize it, and move on with their lives. That's how I define a man is do the difficult things, even if that means going to see a stranger who's a professionally trained therapist and talk about some of your vulnerability. If that's difficult, it's worthy because like being fearless and bravery isn't absence of fear. It's in light of fear. You're still doing it. That's what makes it courageous and fear. So I think my veteran and military experiences, some of my experiences that a lot of people view it as a bravado and what a real man does, I think gives me additional entry points and relatability and comes down to creating a buy-in for the clients to feel comfortable to share what they're sharing with me probably for the first time in their lives. That's amazing. I'm now interested in finding out what my dad thinks a real man is. Ha! <laughs> Speaking of that, do you have a question for my dad? Yes, I do. That's related to what a real man is. Because your dad sees and he gives his high level two cents advice at the end of each episode, right? And he gives great advice, by the way. I have a question for him, which is what does being a good father mean to him? That's a great question. I'm excited to hear what he has to say about that. And one final question for you, kind of coming out of the pandemic, how has therapy changed in the time that you've been in it? Are you asking for as a consumer of therapy? Because I see a therapist or are you asking as a therapist? I'll let you pick. I'll give you both. I'll give him, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll keep him succinct. So as a consumer of therapy, it's a lot more scarce and a lot more difficult to seek therapy. Because there's just so much demand. And the pandemic was about physical illness, like a like it was a pandemic, right? But then there is the invisible hidden epidemic, which is mental health. The suicide rate during the pandemic, the adolescents, the little girls, like one of the highest suicide populations is adolescent teenage girls because social media, unrealistic beauty standards, the eating disorder we started this interview with. 
it's staggeringly hot. It's extremely concerning how many little girls attempt to take their own lives or they do end up taking their own lives because of cyberbullying and because of the beauty standards through social media. So that's the consumer side. As the therapist giving therapy, therapists are making more money now because I think they're finally recognizing the role of therapist and because supply and demand, basic economics, right? So because of the rise of demands, there is the rise of supply. So I do see more people going to therapy who want to help people, who want to help reshape and reimagine a lot of people's internal reality landscape which is really exciting to see. So it's, it's, it's mixed because the rise of therapy cost is deterring a lot of people from a lower or more marginalized socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's the barrier to service is a little bit more difficult for a lot of people. So it's, it's mixed, but I do see that a lot of people believe in therapy a little bit more. But I want to caveat that because whoever is seeking therapy, unless you're first-time therapy seekers, you've already bought into therapy before. So we need to target the population that hasn't bought into therapy, who has never seen therapists before, because those people are often the people who need help the most. But even though they're desperately in need of therapy or any other help seeking, like life coaching, whatever, just therapy, just one of many vehicles for help. They're often not getting the help they need because seeking help is hard because to seek help, you have to recognize that you need help. And recognizing that you need help first and foremost, I think is the greatest barrier, especially for a lot of men. Yeah, therapy landscape has been interesting and mixed with upsides and downsides post-pandemic. It's also expensive. I, I would think that that would be a barrier too. Someone in my audience even said, like, why is it so hard to get in with a therapist? She found it to be hard. And like you said, the supply and demand thing that she's been told that she has to wait weeks to get in with one. So at USC, I work at Keck Counseling Center at USC on campus. So I serve all USC populations, undergraduate to PhD students. Our USC clinic site, we serve about 21,000 students a year. There is 65 of us clinicians. Let me say that again. There's over 20,000 students seeking help every year and the number is growing. There are 65 of us therapists. So of course it's hard to seek therapy. Addition to that is not all therapists are made the same. Just like not all podcasters are the same. Not all doctors are the same. Not all chefs are the same. So there are competent ones and there are, I don't like the word competency because it's like very bourgeoisie who decides competency, but not all therapists have the same capacity for healing. So even if someone can go through and move through all those obstacles and barriers to finally get linked to a therapist for intake session, which is the first session, you may realize that, wow, this is not a good fit. They don't understand me. They don't validate me enough. They don't, I don't like the approach or the modalities they're using. Cause I often say therapy is like a buffet. There's many different flavors. So you have to try out different flavors, but if you don't like a single doctor you've seen, would you just give up on emergency medicine? Would you just never go to hospital again? Probably not, right? You'll probably shop for a new primary care physician. Likewise, if you have a air quote bad or less than ideal experience with a therapist, I strongly encourage you to do more shopping and check out a different flavor because there, there will be someone to your liking and there will be a goodness of fit, which is what we call there will be a different flavor and you can discover more. <laughs> Discovering more with us and Rena. Let people know how they can find your podcast, discover more and learn more about you. Exceptional segue. So I have a podcast called Discover More. The show premise is for, it, it's a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers with an emphasis on mental health. 
And if you listen to my new introductions, you will hear Rena's voice in the background as part of my intro. She was gracious enough to submit her recording. And I love a lot of esoteric topics. Of course, I know mental health and psychology the best, but I speak with Christian philosophers. I have podcasters on like Rena. I have entrepreneurs. I have pretty much anyone that I think have fascinating and unique stories to tell. And like Rena, I'm a story junkie. I'll try my borrow from her uh, during our last month of knowing each other. So I love highlighting the stories and elevating the voices they need elevated the most. But if you found any common grounds or interests with the way I view things, my output in life, how I navigate life, if you want to ask me any questions, feel free to connect with me on Instagram and social at Discover More Podcast. You can find my YouTube channel if you're more visual at Discover More Podcast on YouTube. If you're a more audio listener, you can find Discover More Podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. You ever feel like you got to go through the same situations again and again and again? Well, you've heard the famous line that history can repeat itself. If you do the same things or the same type of means occur, you will get the same extremes or the same results. So the truth of the matter is, is that we have to be very, very careful that we don't have certain histories repeat themselves. And one of them throughout time has been the oppression of certain people. And if you don't look alike, smell alike, or believe alike, there's been massive genocide that has occurred over and over and over and over again. So when evil reaches a very intense level and in places the same type of, of variables can continue to reoccur, guess what? You get the same type of results. Somebody else put it that if you uh, do the same things wrong over and over and over again and you expect different results, you also could be uh, dreaming that something better will happen when you don't do anything to change the means that you're that you're attempting to get better results. You know, Benoit says something very interesting to me. He says, how important is it to be a father? Do I want to be a good father? As you know, I do. It's been a learning process all along the way. But the truth of the matter is, is that it was important for me to be a good father. I want to be a good grandfather. I want to be a good son. I want to be a good brother. I want to be a good teammate. I want to be a good ally. I want to be good where I can be counted on whoever I'm interacting with, where I can be counted on by anyone that really knows me. I think that comes out in this episode also is that do we want to just keep working and working and working as sometimes people accuse me of, of chasing dollars, chasing dollars, chasing dollars. And before you know it, you've chased dollars or you've chased your tail and nothing else has happened in your life is also incomplete. My grandmother used to say uh, when somebody would ask her what she does and she's run different businesses and she's been a, a good wife and mother, but she always said, first that raising four children is a very big job and that's my main job. So the truth of the matter is, is that having a continuum or having a legacy and having your family continue goes past just you. It goes on potentially for hundreds or thousands of years. So we have a big responsibility to keep that continuum going, in my opinion. And that's the way I was brought up and taught as well, is that it's not just about yourself. It's about trying to have your family and your children and your children's children be able to carry on. And it's interesting because Benoit said that he was able to make also big salaries and everything. And he felt like he was chasing his tail and that he found incredibly more value in helping people with 
trauma, people that really need help, people who don't know how to necessarily move forward without some type of mentorship and without some type of guiding example. And isn't that really what the Better Call Daddy show is about also, is that we're trying to add a little two cents of wisdom and have a, a learning process where we can all participate, be able to express our feelings, be able to express our story, and be able to see how we can also, by listening to others, be able to move better and better and forward and forward with our lives as well. And it's a good way of also sending a message to your children and your children's children in the future if we're able to communicate these ideas or shared ideas from the show. Isn't it interesting how some people choose impact over dollars? Absolutely. And remember, dollars is a tool. It's not necessarily should be what your whole life is hung up with. It's like I told you, if you have a gun where a person is just polishing their gun all day long and dreaming about being in a war, and it's a very unlikely scenario for your life to be just caught up in that. Same thing with money. If you use the money correctly, you're able to open doors to being able to have so many more endeavors than someone that maybe doesn't have the money. But there's a lot of people that have no money and yet have strong family ties and gatherings and enjoy nature and are a lot happier than people that are chasing that buck or chasing their tail. I also like to just discuss for a minute that our behavior, if we get good mentorship and good examples, we're able to build on that and keep learning and keep developing. And Benoit would say, meet it head on, whatever your issues or problems are, and try to, again, positively try to create a better path. I agree with that. But look how if a person has trauma and they hold it in and they don't resolve it, it can linger on like a fire can linger on inside and then reflame down the road where it can also just kill you. So the truth of the matter is, is that that it you have to be able to get over whatever that issue is. And that's what Benoit is trying to do. It's he's trying to help you make sure that the fire is out and you're able to go on with your life. That's very important. I thought it was interesting that he said about trauma also, is that when you see these things, you know, we brought this up before about how parents are working hard, they have children, they want attention, and sometimes it's they, they come home, they're tired, and if they do something wrong, they're ready to smack them or something. And the fact is, is that when they grow up, what are they used to seeing? How to discipline children? If they really get way out of control, give them a good potch, give them a good smack, because that's what has been going on for generations. So we have to be very careful at all times in our lives, especially in raising children, that we want to do a better job. We have to also make sure that the children get the attention that they need and you get your satisfaction of being part of their lives because they will do exactly what you're doing to their children and their children's children. If a person's on welfare and they're figuring out a way to always get a handout, guess what? Then you have generations of people just on welfare because that's what their parents did. Have as many children as you can, be married to the United States government, and they'll take good care of you. You don't have to worry about having personal responsibility to do better and be able to learn how to make a living or have a skill that can generate where you can rise above this this situation of poverty that you might be in. The truth of the matter is, is that whether it's a trauma of being abused, a lot of times people that have been abused do the abusing also because that's what they see. That's what they're used to. So we have to break these paths of destruction. Sometimes the battle doesn't, you don't have to go very far 
to find a battle. You don't have to go into war with guns to resolve the problems of the country or the world. It could be right in your own backyard. If we improve our own backyard, one backyard at a time, hopefully that will also give humanity some positive motion. And in order to do that, we do need good examples to follow so that that is the way of the path of the future and not some of these diversionary paths where you end up just banging your head against the wall at the end of the day. I love that. And I'll just say parents could create psychopaths. <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that sometimes even the psychologists have experienced deviant behavior and they're trying then to then deal with people with deviant behavior because they have fielded and experienced it themselves. So what you're saying, it's really very true. But we have to really understand that we don't have to get it wrong first. We can get it right first if we communicate better and we give examples of how to get out of this malaise rather than saying we all have to experience war. We all have to experience death. We all have to experience abuse. We all have to experience losing all your money. Let's learn from other people's experiences and avoid the pitfalls. Let's avoid the minefield of having to blow up first before we get it right. We can get it right by not repeating the problems or the faults of the past. Let's learn from the past mistakes of everyone and create a better future for everybody. So it doesn't have to be, it takes one to know one. Right. Even though that's a very well said, is that sometimes it takes one to know one. But let's see if we can learn how to do better than that. Let's see if we can uplift humanity, just like we uplift the technology and learning how to do things better. Nobody has any problems in using the iPhone now over the flip phone, but raising children, somehow we have to figure out a better way and be able to help them and mentor them better where they don't have to bring a gun to school or be bullied or be abused. Let's see if we can create an environment of learning where we can have a better path to follow as well. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.